You must be like the wolf pack, not like six pack. Teamwork. Yes. Hello and welcome to another episode of There's No I in Podcast, a podcast about teams. It's a podcast about being in teams. It's about leading teams. It is about making the most out of whatever team you're in. My name is Mark Johnson. I am a performance maker and a performance teacher and I am joined as always uh, to an exciting new soundtrack uh, by my partner in pod, uh, head of sport and co-curricular at our shared workplace, Sean Gallagher. Hello, Sean. Hello, Mark. How's it going? I'm really good. What do you think of that? What do you think of the new tunes? Oh my God. I was so excited when we were getting a, a new tune in. Um, and we have the wonderful Mark Johnson to thank for that, along with the company that, that sorted it for us, which, uh, Mark will, will shout out. But yeah, really, really cool, creative thing for us to do to be able to change up the, um, the theme tune. Uh, and I love it. Yeah. It's, it's so great. So we, uh, picked up on a contest being run by uh, a company called Arches Audio. Arches make music for podcasts and for the back of YouTube videos and stuff like that. And they picked their our humble home as uh, one of the podcasts that they were going to provide music for. They were awesome in the process. We threw some ideas at them. They threw some sketches, some musical sketches back, and they said, "What do you think?" And we we gave our you know our notes and what we liked and what we didn't like, and then they sent through even more edits. We've picked the ones we love, and so thank you to Arches Audio, to Jake and to Matt from Arches. If you need any music for stuff, go check them out. It's uh, ArchesAudio Com. Uh, they've got a whole bunch of stuff that you can use that they've already made. We've got a great episode today as well. Now that we've come back with this fresh energy, fresh juice, fresh beats, we've got a really fun one happening today. Yeah, this one was great. All about being creative or hyper creative, as uh, as I think is mentioned. And uh, yeah, it it got my juices going as someone who you know likes to be in his structured box, so to speak. <laughs> Did it pushed you outside of it? For, for definite. Uh, so we hope you've enjoyed listening while uh, the Paralympics and the Olympics have been going on to some of our old episodes. Uh, and thanks a lot for letting us take that break while we kicked back into a new uh, school year at our shared workplace. But we are back now with another interview. And today's guest, uh, I'm particularly excited about, and you'll hear why in the episode, uh, we're going to be speaking to uh, a chap called Hal Evans. And Hal is, amongst other things, the author of a book called Managers Managing Magic, Enabling Creativity, Innovation. And this, it, it's a book about if you manage anyone, if you are in charge of any kind of a team, how you foster and support the creative spark so that teams are innovating in really exciting ways. And uh, Howl is also uh, someone I've known since uh, university, since we went to drama school together and haven't spoken to in, uh, we added it up in about 20 years. So it was a a, a really phenomenal getting back together. Uh, and I think, Sean, you kind of found yourself in the middle of, <laughs> of slight, uh, slightly tangential conversation at points. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I did. There was also a little bit of beef in there, wasn't there, from um, from from way back in the day that I think was resolved in the episode, Mark? 
Yeah, we're talking. I'll let you listen to it, and we'll talk about it in the outro. But yeah, we uh, even I had forgotten about something, but uh, it's it gets covered. Uh, nice tease, Sean. There's also something I want to address that gets talked about at the beginning of the episode, and that is that when we we did have our conversation with Howell, he men- he mentions and teases you a little bit because you're a little bit late. I was indeed. Yes, I was indeed. Uh, was there a reason for that, Sean? I mean, there were several reasons for it, to be honest, Mark. But uh, yeah, I think we're we're in the, the 40s on our episodes. And I think it's one of the only times that I've uh, bleeped up, so to speak. So uh, yes, but it all got sorted Very out. Very consistent until the start of a Euros tournament or a uh, new football season. I can't remember which one it was now. <laughs> Oh, dearie me, dearie me. Uh, yeah, so at the beginning you'll hear Sean uh, get teased a little bit by how that's what he's talking about. Um, although by the time we got into that conversation, uh, we could not stop the conversation. It, it went on for, it's one of our longest chats we've had. I think only Michael Moore has gone on longer, but it really was just wherever it went, uh, there was gold. So we were picking stuff up wherever we went along. Uh, I'm going to, we haven't got time to uh, talk much more about it. So what we'll do is we'll jump straight into our conversation with uh, Hal Evans. Teamwork. Yes. Okay, so we are, and I am particularly excited (laughs) to welcome on to the podcast Hal Evans. Hal is an enterprise and innovation advisor. He is a radio and audio producer, which means that, uh, Sean, we have to be on our podcast game today (laughs) we really do he is also a uh he runs a hotel for rabbits which i'm sure we'll talk about later but and i mentioned this in the intro uh hal and i actually went to university at the same time uh did slightly different courses i nearly did your course i never knew that nearly on the directing course i went for both decided acting was my path and that didn't work out but this is the first time we have spoken in 20 years 20 years it could be uh, so oh. it is lovely to uh, see you virtually uh, and to chat to you. <laughs> Hello, Hal. Thank you. It's really lovely to be here and thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me and well done on this podcast because um, I've made lots of podcasts and their regular podcasts are hard, hard work. Like Sean's shown today, you know, you can't get the staff, these lazy people who just <laughs> d- do it from home. They, they can't even turn up. Facts. You know? like, what else has he got to do this time? He's just got to turn up at Mark's house and that was too much, you know? <laughs> if you're not paying him, he doesn't get out of bed for less than a grand. Well, well, when Jack Grealish goes to Man City for 100 million, I'm expecting, like, <laughs> something. Do you know what I mean? Uh, it's great it's, to have you. Honestly, I am a big fan of the podcast, so well done and thanks. Thank you. And the other thing that I didn't mention, and I think that's probably cue for you to give a much bigger intro, is that you're also the author of a book called Managers Managing Magic, which is part and parcel of some of your creative facilitation and your kind of innovation management. Do you want to talk a little bit about kind of what you're doing now and how you got there, starting maybe with uni? Okay, so there's only two actors that have ever tried to strangle me physically in my life. One, uh, I can't mention because he's not here. The other one is Mark Johnson. (laughs) Um, And... And it was around that time, we'll talk a bit more about that later because it'll help Mark get over the PTSD, but the <laughs> it was around the time that Mark put his hands around my neck that I realized that maybe I wasn't a great people manager. 
<laughs> this, is, this is entirely true. So, anyway, Mark was fantastic. We worked together at uni. I directed him in at least one thing, mm. and that was a lot of fun. I got I got first for that, Mark, in the end. It was, all the pain was worth it. It was described by most people as the first time I had seemed honest on stage, which is quite an interesting thing. Wow. So I, I genuinely want to come back to that because it is part and part of the story of when you grabbed me around the neck. Do you remember grabbing me around the neck? I don't at all. Oh, I remember, the, I remember the project and I remember <laughs> I still keep hold of a bunch of really, really fond memories about it. And the song that you chose for it sits on a whole oh, bunch yeah. of playlists. Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe if I can get away with it, we'll put it on at the end of the episode uh, or at least put a link to the Spotify in the show notes. The Long Pigs. But yeah, the Long See, Pigs. See, I have told... I have mentioned you probably every year of my life since we met each other because as an example of when I've driven somebody nuts. (laughs) 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 So anyway, so theatre director and then radio and then I set up a radio station for a college, for a sixth form college, and that turned into an FM station, a community station that's won lots and lots of awards. And then became a radio presenter with my friend Jamie, who I knew from when I was a kid. And we had about a 15-year career there as a double act on every, lots of stations, including two shows on BBC Six Music, which is <laughs> the, the <laughs> favourite thing to mention out of thousands and thousands of shows. <laughs> but we interviewed, the exciting stuff really is we, we got to interview everyone from Lord Richard Attenborough to Harry Styles. And we turned on the Blackpool Illuminations with Peter Kay. It was, I can do lots of oh name goodness. dropping <laughs> and i have quit radio so i quit uh, quite a high paid radio career and then i quit it again much less paid a couple of years ago and whenever i quit it was always to do with management really or or or, or my mixture of my mental health and management perhaps mm. or not not enjoying certain management skills and i think that's true of lots of people i always found that when i was left to my own devices I could get really high listening figures and enjoy myself when people began to interfere or thought they knew better it made me very miserable which made the show not as good anyway all of this trajectory of theatre through all of these different things I ended up um, working where I work now which is for a big housing association who are an amazing company. I am the enterprise advisor and I'm working on internal innovation there as well and helping people develop ideas of of different kinds. And that can range from someone wanting to set up a cake shop to somebody internally who wants to, I don't know, revolutionize a system that we use or whatever. And in the process of this, the woman who's the big boss of innovation there, she's called Jenny. And she said just before Christmas, how do we become more creative as an organization? And she was just asking on Zoom in the conversation. Mm. And my mind sort of exploded two reasons really one because i thought why is this why is this such a strange question to be asked like from my point of view all i've ever done is build things and create things mm. so to be asked how do we get some of this creativity is a strange thing for me from my worlds and second it was strange to be asked because managers tend not to ask questions of people uh, beneath them in the hierarchy uh, which is a huge huge mistake and, a, and an easy one to fix i think but generally if you imagine a, a pdr or a, whatever you call them a check-in or whatever you tend to be 
there are things that are asked of you yeah. rather than yes. them saying, hey, how can I help you? Yeah, line management as a set of instructions. Yes, yeah. So when Jenny asked me that, I suddenly went, my answer to this is so complex that I need to get this out of my head in some way. If I've ever got a book to write, this is the book that mm. I would write because everything that I seem to do every week, almost every day of my life, somebody says the words to me, I'm not creative. And I've heard Sean say similar things on this podcast. You know, Mark's, Mark's the one who's always sparking off creative ideas. Sean's like, I'm not, I'm not that creative. <laughs> yeah. Good, good I mean, pickup. Um, good pickup. Cause I definitely have said that multiple times. It gets yeah. me out of having to do more stuff. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Good work. <laughs> okay, so by the end not, of this podcast, no excuses. <laughs> I'm super. I'm super creative. I just want to, but I just want to press go and record. <laughs> so can you go to Starbucks? Um, I'm not very creative. Exactly. And that sums up how I feel about it. Really, is that firstly, firstly, when someone says that, I think first of all, why is that even a sentence that people say? Because everybody is creative. Like everyone's creative sean got dressed i mean only just but sean got dressed today right the the fact that sean got dressed and chose a lovely pair of gray headphones that he's wearing you you make creative choices just all the time as much as you breathe you make creative choices right so it is as it is as natural and common and subconscious as breathing is and you'd think it was the weirdest thing in the world if someone said, oh, I'm not a breather, right? Yeah. I'm not that good at breathing. You go, are you sick? What? And that's how weird it is to me to mm. hear people say that. And I hear it all the time. And, and I think the reason that people say it is complex. And the whole first part of my book is about th really therapy for people to say, look, this is why you think that way. A lot of it is explained by Sir Ken Robinson in his mo in the most watched TED talk ever, yeah. <laughs> Do Schools Kill Creativity? You know, um, school, we all went through the same school system. Anybody listening to this went through the same school system, wherever you are in the world. And that taught you that creativity is a marginalized thing, right? Mm. It's pushed to the margin. And what we do when we push something to the margin is we are prejudiced against it and we hold it up in great esteem mm. in equal measure. So, and if you think about anything that, that has experienced prejudice, that's true that within a marginalized group, we'll have heroes and we'll go, you know, in a time when uh, people were massively racist, you'd also have Eddie Murphy as the most popular uh, movie star in the world or whatever. And, and anything that is not understood by the mainstream, anything that the mainstream kind of go, this is weird. What we'll do is we'll go, there are movie stars. There are Hollywood stars. John C. Riley is one of the most highly paid people in the world. He went to clown school. Mm. How many people listening to this, if their kids said, I'm thinking of being a lawyer or a clown would say, go for the clown, right? Nobody. Yeah. And, and that is an own goal. That's wrong. Like it's by all objective evidence, it's wrong. And and I put, that stuff in the same world as sport I, I think sport and any vocational stuff yeah our willingness to believe that it's a magic trick that success yeah and and it, it and and well it, it is a magic trick if you say a magician is unbelievably well rehearsed well practiced they've trained 
they've gone to the sports field every day of whatever their special thing is. And they are managing to pull something off, which means that you can say, that's just a magic trick, Mm. right? Jonathan Ross, when he was being paid 17 million to present shows on the BBC, it was so easy for people to say, anyone can do this. He just talks over the gas. I hate him. He's just, he just jokes around. Put 17 million pounds worth of pressure on anybody's head and say, go out and speak to millions of people once a week and be funny. Right? <laughs> and then people would crumble. And it's years of practice. It's skill. So, yes, people think it's a magic trick. So the book was about saying, how can you? Like, this is a massive problem that we've got. All of us, me included, we're all still prejudiced against creativity. We all still, mm. Mark and I still apologize or make a joke every day about going to drama school and and, and doing animal study as a, as, a, <laughs> as a module. We all have to apologize for it every day. And yet we know that what we did was more hours, harder work, and has given us a better understanding of so many things in life than my friends who just went to a regular uni course. So why are we apologizing? So the book tries to explain yeah. to people why we think we're the way we do and how you can, with a just a very, very simple couple of techniques, how you can start killing ideas. And that's something I found interesting about the book is that you describe there a personal approach or a personal perspective on our own creativity. What you appear to have with the book gone for is kind of acknowledging that we exist in this organizational framework and how can people responsible for that framework not do the things that kill creativity which i think is interesting because rather than rather than saying to someone go be funny believe in yourself you can it's saying to an organization like you've got a whole bunch of funny people how can you let them tell jokes yes in a way that 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 fits the the model of the business because we're never not going to be in that system yeah i mean the 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 premise of it, the little blurb that I put on the back of the book is, you know, the, 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 this sort of Pixar like concept. Mm. I accidentally came up with a, a good, a good concept for a Pixar film, I think, <laughs> which is that above the, above the meeting rooms of the world, there are these things just hanging above the ceiling that are the, the ideas that have been left there to die, that it's a graveyard of dead ideas above meeting rooms. And, and it's because institutionally, yes, what tends to happen is that people, um, shoot down ideas. They either shoot their own ideas down or they shoot other people's ideas down with the best intentions. They're shot down just so quickly. Mm. There's so many dead ideas every day. And if you are You're a sports person, if Sean decided to, I don't know, tell me a sport you don't do, Sean. Or cricket. So if Sean decided that he was going to make a go of being in a cricket team. And for the first time, he stepped out and picked up a cricket bat and someone bowled a 100-mile-an-hour ball at him. It's highly likely that Sean will leave the field and not play cricket again, possibly with a broken chin, right? (laughs) Because Sean will, number one, he's been bowled at too fast. Number two, he's decided this isn't for me. He's gone, I can't do this. And what we tend to do with creativity and also ideas is that we leap into things we kind of kamikaze into going, oh, I'm going to learn the piano during lockdown. And we take a couple of different approaches. One is either we just buy the most expensive piano in the world. If we've got the money, we sit down, we hit it and we go, why can't I play the piano? I hate myself. And you've sold it the same day. Or you get piano lessons 
and you teach yourself through the most boring set of scales in the world. And within three days, you go, piano's not for me. And so Sean with the cricket, it would be a similar thing. He'd leap into a high power game or he'd start reading a book about cricket, right? It would be ludicrous. Whereas what Sean probably would do because he knows sport and because he's used to playing is he would play. He'd play at something. And if anybody steps in and went, you know what, Sean, I don't think cricket's for you on day one. He'd probably go, I didn't ask you what you thought. What I, I, don't, I don't care whether you think cricket's good for me or not. <laughs> in the workplace, if you're sat in a meeting and someone says, do you know what we could do? We could, um, we could try this thing on Tuesday next week. People feel like it's their job because they're paid. Mm-hmm. They feel like it's their job at that moment to issue a judgment. And the judgment is either positive yeah, I think we should do that. And also what you should do is blah, 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 and they give you a load of stuff that you didn't think of. That then has removed the idea from you. That's not your idea anymore and you've lost the enthusiasm. It's their idea. Or they go, yeah, we've tried that before and we, it won't work. We don't have the budget. Yeah, how do you think that'll work, Mark? I, that's I, that's not going to work. Judgment is issued immediately. And what we do is just kill stuff straight away. Enthusiasm's gone. So it's about creating a way mm. of taking ideas somewhere. So are you saying that, there needs to be, and this is where my brain works, there needs to be a resilience to creativity. Because what I see is a lot of young people will go into a sport, their, their parents will push them into karate and they'll go to the first lesson and they won't have a clue. And they'll say, mom, dad, I don't want to do that. Now, in my opinion, the good parent says, you're doing this for six weeks. And then after six weeks, tell me where you're at yeah. because they'll end up enjoying it after six weeks because they understand it more. They understand the process. They understand the environment. They've improved slightly. They've had a few good pointers from their coach, et cetera, et cetera. So are we kind of saying that with creativity that we might need to just push through the, the hard bits early on to be a bit more creative to then gain the reward later on. Great question. I've done a podcast for years called The Box Set Pod and we talk about different TV shows. And early on, we came up with something called the four-episode rule. We said yeah. you you have to watch four episodes of, of something before you make your mind up. And that if you commit to that, you have to actually commit to it and say you are not going to enjoy it for four episodes. You're going to be miserable, right? And that's what the good parents are doing. And you that's exactly right. Now, the bad parents... I mean, I suppose they either just pull them straight out and say, okay, you don't want to do that. But the the even worse parents are the ones that issue the judgment. So the worst parents will be the one who's done karate before, right? Yeah. (laughs) They've got the experience and they've watched the class and the kid comes out and goes, I don't think I enjoy this. And they go, it's because you're not lifting your leg high enough. Right. <laughs> it's because you're not like Mr. Miyagi said this and you dropped the wrong knee at the wrong time. Uh, th- that's an even worse parent because, again, it's removing any chance of individualism, any chance of growth. The easiest way to think of all of it is conception of a child and going, at, at what age do you think it's right to tell a child? what you think they should do for a living and start to put pressure on them for that, right? Because I think, one, you probably should never do that. But if you do, it should certainly not be till they're like 18, right? (laughs) Or something. Ideas are like that. You're talking to two people that work in a sick form where that's literally 
it feels like what, what we're told to, to, yeah, to do. Yeah. <laughs> Choose fewer subjects until you've got the one that you're going to be stuck with. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So let's just, let's just go back to 11 plus <laughs> and decide who's going to be a plumber at the age of 11. And, but, but even if you have limited choices, it's more about the enjoyment of the thing of, of not threading the needle too much and going, well, here's all the pressure on how to do this thing. The greatest parents and the greatest, um, uh, directors the, the best sports coaches i mean i could talk about uh, gareth southgate for for an hour right because i am sean i am absolutely awful at sport uh, i mean it, it's like i'm clueless about football but i think because i'm quite good at management <laughs> i think i i could see from the first game that southgate was ever in charge of i could see that things were going to go well because the players went out and they were doing things that the squad before rooney and, and that lot what we had before this squad were were a bunch of terrified people and then what we had with under southgate suddenly the first game they played people were like doing overhead kicks they were doing keepy uppies in the middle of the- <laughs> it was like it was inventiveness it looked like people who were resting on their natural enjoyment and i 100% guarantee you that southgate's main instruction to them is to go and enjoy themselves that he will he he has the the parameters he knows listen this is strategy this is the way that i want everyone to think about it but i guarantee that he's going Go and play the worst game of your life, you know, just doing something to take the pressure yeah. off. And they're because they're just so inventive. It's just so natural and, and fluid and improvisational. Yeah, And as, I think it's what if people aren't massive football fans and haven't been the ones that spark their kind of imagination are the the players like a Foden or like your Messi's and your Maradona's like because these players were doing things like they were doing on the street when they were 12 years old. Now with all the pressure and the money and the fans and all that kind of stuff, they still go out there with freedom and creativity, which gets knocked out of a lot of athletes and, and footballers early on because they're told to be in a certain box and this is what you're allowed to do. So as you're saying, as someone who maybe doesn't know the ins and outs of the sport, just watching it, you could tell, wow, these players look quite free. They look like they're, they're being able to do what they want to do. And like you said, I think in any good organization, if you walk through those doors, and I'm sure that you've had experience of this, and maybe you can maybe let us know a couple of organizations where you felt like, okay, there does feel like creativity can be allowed to happen in this space. I think you feel it straight away for sure. Yeah, I can give you examples of, of really good bosses, right? And because the the way I would describe what we would call creative worlds, I, I call it in the book, hyper-creative environments. So a, a hyper-creative workplace would be working at a radio station, a theatre, Netflix, um, Disney, you know, any of these places, they're places where you go in and the whole job is starting with a blank sheet and creating something often by the end of the day. So um, the concept of the book was why do businesses always ask sports people for their advice on innovation? Why aren't they asking hyper creative places and i think that the answer to that and it's not that sports people have nothing to give sean and your sports psychologist last week you know sports psychology people are, are fascinating and brilliant and useful mm. um but it still seems to me that we don't think about asking the hyper creative people because we've got this inbuilt prejudice that it's it's being silly for a living whereas sport fits with the kind of masculine ideas of business we're going to cross the line we're going to smash the competition 
Graft effort, performance. Yeah, which, um, so I've had bosses, sorry, Sean, to just kind of answer your question. I've had bosses both in creative environments and and in not creative environments who have been great and bosses who've been awful. And for me, the great, one of the best ones was a guy called Frank Gill. He was the principal of the sixth form college where I set up the radio station. He, and before him, Sir George Sweeney, who was the guy who asked me to set the thing up. They were both great for the same reason, which was, I realized when Frank took over, I hadn't heard from him for six months. This is my boss. And I went to him and said, I just wanted to check. I haven't heard from you for six months. So is everything all right? He goes, yeah. I think if someone's doing a job, like let them do the job. You'll, you'll come and ask for help if you want it. Another great example I give is, which I say in the book, is a woman called Vicky. She was the sales boss at a radio station that I was working at. And she was momentarily in charge of the whole thing because the programming boss left. She came to us and said, right, what do you want to do? What do you want to achieve with your show and i'm thinking okay wow. here starts the kind of kpi type uh, conversations and i said i want to take the show to vegas for a week and she said great how can i help you <laughs> and i almost fell off my stool i was like uh she said we've got no budget how can i help you let's do it cut forward seven months i've worked harder than i've ever worked in my life i've taken five people to vegas on a 500 pound budget the station has made 70 grand in sponsorship and we've won an, an award for the best feature presented by walking in the airs alad jones at the radio <laughs> awards and that's all because uh all because a boss said how can i help you you know that she had to do barely nothing to actually help us what what she actually did was just get out the way mm. just just get out of the way you guys work for education and you can't slug off education because you're working it but i've worked in education for years as well and it's a great example of a place that has so much regulation so much regulation and that changes quite often whoever the latest michael gove is that's wheeled mm. into issue some new stupid um, latin in schools everybody latin in school yeah but i do talk about compliance in the book mm. and compliance is something people think that compliance stops us working on new ideas right oh we can't do that yeah we're not allowed to do that in almost every case number one there's nothing to fear you can try almost any idea out safely mm. and number two it takes a belief. It's actually a belief that um, compliance will stop it. It's it's yeah. almost always not that compliance actually stops it. It's an institutional belief. Yeah, we'd never get away with that. We can't do that. It's too risky yeah. or we, we wouldn't be allowed because of safeguard. Certainly in schools. I mean, there's there's a bunch of times I've me and Mark have probably had a conversation about this or should we try this or what if we could do that? And then it's like five minutes later, you've already decided no, that would be really difficult or no, there's a bunch of compliance around that or no, it would take X, Y, and Z to have to happen. Like it's a lot of stuff when you, especially working with young people. And then I think young people miss out on a bunch of creative stuff because simply there's so much compliance that people do get put off. There are a lot less trips generally in schools across the country now than they used to be. Well, I didn't know till recently that sc schools, you know, GCSEs are, are, are not, you don't have to do GCSEs by law. Did you know that schools don't have to do GCSEs? It's a choice. You're not allowed in the league tables unless you do GCSEs. That's why schools do GCSEs. So schools could opt to not do exams. Wow. 
they kept that, and some do. So some of Sir Ken Robinson's sort of legacy, you know, and the the school in Battersea that that um, Wills and Kate are sending one of their uh, George, I think, to oh Saint Thomas is one of these Saint schools. Thomas's or something like that. Is that what it's? I read an article about this, and that's where I learned. Oh, you don't have to do GCSEs. Wow, <laughs> you can what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding me? Creativity in education has become how do you teach? Teachers are incredible. My whole family are teachers. But what I see more often than not is that teachers are using their creativity to find ever more interesting ways to teach to the test. But they're still having to teach to the test. So that, so it's like going, well, we need to, we need to teach somebody uh, the mechanics of how to switch a light switch on. And every teacher will be f- desperately finding different ways to dress that up and put glitter on it. But ultimately, they're still having to teach what the light switch is, right? It's incredibly hard. Yeah, this speaks something to, and we're talking about it in a couple of different contexts here, but it speaks to that idea in the book of creating space and then kind of holding or protecting space for creativity and failure. And as soon as you put a GCSE in there or a KPI in there, you start moving towards a system where failure has stakes. And that for me strikes me as slightly anti-collaborative in the, Mm. like, I know my instinct is to not pull anyone down with my crazy. Right. How do we make this kind of creativity, which is from the stuff you're talking about, like a spark that's come from inside that needs to kind of grow from inside of an idea, whether that's blue sky or solving a problem. How do we make that a collaborative process? You talk about partnerships quite a lot mm. or, or or buddies a lot in the book. Yeah, yeah. I've always worked in teams. I've I've never I, I work alone now more than more than anything before. I was watching Ted Lasso the other night. Mm. Are you watching Ted Lasso? I haven't given it its four episodes yet. I've not given it its four episodes. Mark, it's one of the best things you'll ever watch. Just don't don't, don't stop. Honestly, don't stop. You think you know what it is, but phew, I have cried more at that series than it's possibly sane <laughs> to do so. Um and and the other night um, and the latest episode, they just took a team photo with a girl who it meant everything to. And I had tears in my eyes because this moment, and it reminded me of how much like I've missed teamwork. I miss directing quite a lot. And, mm. I, and I really like working with people. I've, you know, I was in a double act. Uh, maybe it's because I was a twin at birth. Still am a twin. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, kids are very good, aren't they? It's difficult when, when you're forming ideas because kids are very good at like um, hiding their painting until they're ready to show it to somebody. Right. And that's that's what creativity needs. That's what you need to do. But the but the the other issue when you're when you're an adult is that actually you don't have all the answers and you do benefit from what other people can contribute to that picture because that picture is almost always made better when you find someone you can collaborate with who you do actually trust you two obviously mark and sean are a good team there because you'll trust each other and you you know that you'll probably go down on your shit rather than sell each other out you know Mm. so there's and, and there is this thing that happens at kind of away day type events where people are put together with people they don't know in an organization, team forced teamwork mm. with others. And this seems like a great strategic thing to do from the people making the decisions. And it's a terrible strategic thing to do in my, <laughs> in my view, because if you really trust someone, you'll do something amazing. That's so funny. I was actually going to say that to you. What do you think about these forced sort of 
team away days and things like that you know it's going to spark the creativity and teamwork and then you're going to come back the next day and then that workplace and team is going to be awesome it doesn't quite work like that it's a great question there's two things to it one is that the away day creativity works on the subconscious so to come up with what i was going to write my book about i went for a walk in december in the freezing cold and just talked into the notes in my phone like an idiot until i found the thing that i was going to do you know taking yourself out of an environment is actually really good which is where away days have got some value but i think a lot of away days also can be over controlled they can be over planned there's budget that's been spent on this so we want to see results from it and the problem with creativity is that in order for it to really thrive you can't put the pressure of results on it not initially anyway not with people who aren't used to it i mean it's okay if, if me and mark were saying all right we're going to devise a, a piece of theater by the end of today we would be able to do that we'd make something we make something um, because we're used to shipping, as Steve Jobs put it, you know, we're used to shipping on time. It doesn't mean it'll be any good, but because of our experience, it will probably be better than a lot of people would be able to make it. Now, same way, Sean, if you had to put together a five-a-side team in the next hour, you could probably do it. Quite often, the results that come from those things are, are forgotten. They're, they're written on a whiteboard or they're, they're done on the day and then they disappear. Um, because the day itself has been so unique that then what happens is people go back to the same routines and day to day and they're too busy and new stuff then doesn't happen. So everybody's waiting for someone else to, to do it. So the net effect of away days can be that you teach people that when we try and do this stuff, nothing ever comes of it. Mm. And that's what they then say, say to some, somebody who's been there a while and they say, oh, we're going for this uh, away day. They'll say, yeah, we do these, but nothing ever comes of it. So the away day thing, I, I would say taking a team off to the pub for an afternoon and saying, go and work on whatever you want is as valuable, mm. if not more valuable. Well, I think you about, just sent everyone away. They yeah. come up with something great. I think about uh, a chap called Ned Glazer who runs a young people's organization called Company Three. And every year they take the entire youth theatre. Uh, there's you know up to 50 people in this group. They take them away for a residential and they run workshops and they bring in kind of guest people. There is uh, there is an agenda to those workshops. And he talks about how the actual work of making, of understanding what we're going to be doing next, comes from the pizza in the evening. Totally. And the workshops, he has have zero, have zero expectation of making good work out of it. But they are always yeah. fueled by the fact that we had a conversation about TikTok over dinner. And that gave us all of our ideas. Yeah. And it's about harnessing, capturing and doing something with the informality of that, that leads them to the next piece of work. So in my, in my experience so far, and, and I'm not, you know, I have not read as many books as you guys. I, I, but in my experience, I, 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 I have always seen that when people try and strategize to achieve something creative, <sighs> It does work, but if you were to just go off results, if we're just mm. counting results, right, it always loses to people sitting in a pub and talking to each other, yeah. right? And then, and it's a bit like saying when, when you're coming up with a kind of innovation system um, at work, we've created this ideas studio thing where mm. people can bring, bring ideas to us and work with us. There was always this debate about 
people shouldn't have to lead their own idea, right? People don't want to. They're busy enough. They've got too much time. They've got too little time. Um, they should be. It should be like a suggestion box. So Sean says, you know what? The college should have a new IT system, and that should be done by someone else. And you can look at that and go, well, that makes sense. Sean hasn't got the IT skills to make this thing happen. Therefore, it should be handed to someone who does. But the someone who does that it's happening to, that it's being handed to, is also super busy. They've already got stuff. They've got stuff that they're working on that they want to change for the future. So what do you say? Okay, third option, let's employ a, a team of people who are there to just implement stuff. So there's these three people who are the innovators. <laughs> if someone makes an idea, Sean says, let's do it, they work on it. Guess what? When that happens, they would have to go back to Sean and talk to him about what he meant. They'd have to go to IT and talk about how that fits in with the current systems and all of that. And ultimately, you don't, you don't move any quicker than you would in either of the two. So no option is great. But the best option is Sean leads it. That's the best option. The best option is that Sean is in charge of his idea until it reaches a point that the business needs to make a proper judgment and invest or that he needs proper software support or whatever. But in those early stages of exploring the idea, how will it work? Talking to people in IT, will this system work? I've, I've found this system. I found this demo online of this system. Sean should be the one that's doing it. And it's not great news for Sean that because what Sean wants is for a system where he can just file off an idea and the company gets on with it. But it's the best way. Otherwise, you just yeah. go around in circles and you end up yeah. with a culture that says we talk about innovation, but we don't do it. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and it's the same with the away days as it is with that. It's going when you consciously try to crowbar in stuff, when you try to go, can we have £4.50 worth of creativity next Tuesday? It's highly unlikely that you'll get as much value as if you just looked person to person, manager to manager, which is what the book's about, and said, how do you allow somebody the time to go and fail at something yeah to go and mess around with something yeah and shut up shut shut your mouth and let them go and work on something absolutely yeah i think i think maybe mark when you were speaking about sort of allowing for space for the creativity for me i have come up with some ideas in in our workplace and it has kind of felt that i've put a lot of the enthusiasm and the thought into it and spoken to the right people like you've just said and gone through all that process and then it hits a point yeah in the hierarchy of decision making and things like that and then that kind of stops you get fat no yeah or yeah. or maybe you don't even get a no mm. which can be even more frustrating that there's a long period of of decision making and umming and ahhing and you just want to go through with that with that idea that you've put in the kind of time and work on. And I think people can get burnt by that in the workplace yeah. and in teams. They can get burnt by, you know, you go for a pint with someone who's worked in the organization for 10 years. You didn't realize he was Mr. Creativity in his first year working there and now just very much does his or her job because you come with ideas and you are creative and things don't get through because that's how the organization runs. And that's where you then have a poor culture. Yes. And that's mm. really dangerous. Yeah. It, it, and there's two things there, I think, Sean. Great point. One is that the the dragon that you're fighting is very difficult. It just is. And quite often people will, people will hit a no. Sometimes it'd be a great idea that you've worked on. It might even be something that could save money or time or whatever, like as in a no-brainer for the business, and it can still receive a no. Sometimes an organization is just rotten from the top. 
I'm not saying yours is. God, I wouldn't say that. But quite often it can be, and it can just be that the, the, those places where the, I, I put it like this. I was I was chatting to Lee Cockrell, who ran Walt Disney Resorts for years and Marriott mm. and stuff. He's a big, big business guy. And he talks about uh, managing uh, the Disney parks and things. Um, and I, I asked him the same question, really. How do you change something when the top boss is, is doesn't get it? And he said, you can't. Like, very rarely can you change it. You just have to accept that that's the case. But I also think that I worked somewhere for many years that was like that. And it was, and I did some of the most creative stuff I've ever done there. And the way that that worked was fight was creating your own silo, mm. creating your own projects that doesn't affect them. It doesn't interfere with them. It's off their radar. It doesn't matter. Right. So you, you can take things to one side and you can work on passionate stuff and just do it. What can often happen then is that a movement is created. If when you were taking that stuff up the tree, you got 20 other teachers on board with the thing rather than taking it upwards, you, you went horizontally. You then have a movement where everyone's, can we just do this? It's easier. It's better. Can we just do it? And, and once everyone's saying it, it's a no-brainer. Almost everything in large organizations comes down to either protection and, and being risk-averse or surprise-averse, or people just wanting to get the job done and go home, you know, or just mm. get it done. If it saves, ultimately, if you go to someone and go, this new system, it'll mean you'll spend four hours a day less picking up shit. They'll go, I don't like picking up shit. Uh, yeah, let's do that. You know, Moral of the story is you fail sometimes and you just got to keep trying. Sometimes you have to park an idea and, and just accept that you can't change the thing. But I do think that um, especially if you work in education or health um, or places that are very, very old and have systems upon systems upon systems, you have probably been brainwashed um, naturally you've been brainwashed into thinking that very little is yeah. possible and actually uh, a lot is possible with with what you've got probably a lot is so if you've got autonomy over a sports hall or a theater and you've got ability to book those things you've probably got the ability to do stuff it might be innovation stuff that you do in those spaces yeah i think that does uh, it speaks to what you were talking about the helpfulness though of understanding compliance and what is actually essential and necessary for yeah. uh, the survival of your organization and what is within the scope of you to mess with. Uh, like there's some stuff we absolutely mm. could not touch working in education, working in healthcare. You Like what? I've got a, an example. Well, ho hopefully it's a decent example. Yeah. So when Mark says can't touch, there would have been a time where st students and staff could probably have conversations that weren't just in the classroom. So it might be down the street or locally around the area, you know, that make conversations may have just happened or they may have had each other's phone numbers and maybe a coach would call up the house and say, are you training today? Or, the, you know, things like that. So let's take communication. So I had to do a workaround where I wanted to be able to give really quick information to students about the football team, netball team, basketball team. If I do emails, teenagers are, are really bad on email, even though they're super savvy on, you know, technology, mm -hmm. they don't like emails in my experience. It's not their form of communication. No. Yeah. What do they use? They use WhatsApp. Snapchat. They have friends groups, Snapchat. So I gave my captain the responsibility to set up a WhatsApp group, add everyone into it 
and then he is my mouthpiece or she is my mouthpiece to then relay information then that means that that student can instantly shoot something out get really quick responses and i know what the hell's going on and i've been able to get information out there now that is a i think a creative workaround awesome but it's just interesting where mark is saying about things we can't do i couldn't just call them up off my personal phone i couldn't just do that after a certain time in the evening because there would be issues around that you know yeah. so yeah. as as a kind of statutory issues yeah and as Mark's, as a Mark's plan to set up a lap dancing bar on campus is just not being listened to <laughs> <sighs> no but in an adult working environment just a normal business for instance they're just little things that you don't really need to worry about there's like there's a lot of tape that might not be there i think that's where you educators um get it wrong as well though i i think there's there is similar challenges everywhere in in different organizations not all of them but most places now what what you're really talking about is 2021 um and in most places now there are people whose job it is a lot of people, a whole department whose job it is to say no in order to protect everybody, right? Um, add to that social media, add to that the pressure of make, saying one thing wrong or doing one thing wrong or being found out that once upon a time you tried to strangle a director when you were in a, in a play 20 years ago. You know, these things could bring your career crashing down. I was practically um, a child. <laughs> Sean, that's a great example. What you've done there is a brilliant workaround. It's brilliant. Not only is it brilliant for you, it's, you know, if other, if other coaches aren't doing that, there'd be people out there who are gagging to hear that and, and you should be telling them about it. Because what you also do, you could offer an incentive to your captain. I mean, they're the captain for a start. But if you've got any kind of incentives where you give out flipping Mars bars or whatever teachers are allowed to do, like asking them to set notifications on their, for their emails so that when you, or, or to set you as a VIP email so that when when you do send one, it pops up on their phone and they send it to the WhatsApp group straight away. Um, it's brilliant. And what's even better about that is that the, the order is coming from their peer. They're listening to their peer and not their teacher. I mean, it's just, it's a really good example of where like, I'm, I really don't like do a lot of positive thinking, um, language stuff, NLP stuff, but it is a great example of where parameters often give you the greatest creativity somebody in a prison cell is able to probably be more creative more easily than somebody who lives in buckingham palace and and has all the options that they would possibly want parameters make really good results so that's a great example that's kind of stuff have you got an example mark have you got an example of what you're of what you're struggling with no so my my um uh, one of my functions at our shared workplace was as a safeguarding lead oh. yeah there are some extremely rigid and fundamentally important ways in which we protect students that if a teacher's idea and often it does come down to and comes down to again being a little bit doom and gloom and risk averse for the sake of consequence but those organizational environments where i am in our policy forbidden to have a private conversation with a student or to have a social media relationship with a student you as a safeguarding officer like any of us who've done safeguarding of course it all makes 100 percent sense all that stuff is important but my my position on it is this any person's job, if they're paid for compliance, their job exists because of the main activity, right? So if your job is 
let's take it to Hollywood. Mm. If your job is health and safety supervisor or stunt coordinator for a Tom Cruise movie, your job, your pay exists because that film is there to be made. Therefore, your job mm. is to make it work somehow to make it work. It's too easy for people in compliance to say, here are the reasons we can't do that. Uh, it was the same in broadcasting. You know, um, we, we, I went on air every day for 15 years with stupid ideas and crazy ideas. And of course, if lawyers were ever asked the question of whether we can do half the stuff we did, the answer was always no. But the comeback is, then how? Because well, we're doing it. So how? You know, mm. your job is to tell us how we do this, not why we, what the reasons are we can't. And I think that approach is because it is what we because do. It is what we're here to do. And I, and I just want to bring, I just want to bring it back to Hollywood for for one moment, and then we and then we're done, right? If you don't mind, yeah. Because this is something I'm I'm really passionate about when it comes to like asking someone like me to consult or I, my favorite thing to do is have conversations with people like you about specifics i like the book is there talking about everything but i love talking about like sean's challenges there and mm. it's brilliant and a lot of it is individual based so we're all looking for this recipe when actually would we should be encouraging people to cook more when it comes to innovation right managers are looking for things they can hand down i'm going to cascade this to my team is something that i hear a lot Everyone's looking to tell people how to be innovative or, or just to pass anything down the hierarchy. And rather than encouraging people to mess around, to play, to come up with stuff and removing your own opinion from it. Frank, that boss of mine, he was great because he never once told me what he thought of something that was going out on the radio station that was running. Never once. He didn't pass judgment on what I was doing. He thought of himself as someone who was there to, to help me. And when it comes to the creative versus sport thing, I did some research last night in advance of this, right? United claim to have 1.1 billion fans. That's what they claim to have. That's based on 143 years of tribal obsession and multi-millions spent on marketing. And it's also based on 6,000 games, right? So based on maths alone... You could divide that up and say that the teamwork at play at Man United has gained an audience of 183,000 fans per game. All right? 183,000 per game. La La Land, the movie, directed by Damien Chazelle. He made one film. That's one game. Right? He played a game. They have made $445.6 million at the box office and around $20 million home box office, which amounts to around 31 million people. And we can presume that at least twice have watched it illegally or shared the couch with family and friends. So around 40 million people based on one game of football. And their budget was 50 million. The United 11, plus a couple of subs, cost 654 million. So we're not just counting the whole staff of an organization just the players they've got a debt of 445 million la la land had a cast and crew of just under 1000 people i counted it on imdb and they've made a profit <laughs> of 410 million dollars conservatively so it's fair to say la la land has made the same amount of money with one game than man united have in debt over 143 years of trying and yet, what businesses want to do when it comes to innovation is talk to sports consultants. And again, I am not knocking sports consultants, but what sports consultants are really great at is talking to the individual about confidence and about um, being able to enjoy themselves. And that is something that we've seen for years. 
the best show that a, a play does when they're on tour is the last show of the tour, right? The last night of the show is amazing. It crackles. It's brilliant. If you've ever worked anywhere else, boys, and I'm sure you have, how good is your last day at work? How well do you work, right? You just like, you just walk through, just throwing things out. And it, it, it's amazing. And the reason that it's so amazing is you don't care anymore. The fear is gone. You have now got Gareth Southgate in your head, removing the fear. I was talking to a great British athlete the other day, he's a triathlete, and we were talking about the Olympics. And it's interesting that when you see that, like that swimmer guy, you know, that I'm the best in the world. Well, this is the British guy. Um, uh, PT, quite often, Adam PT. Yeah, PT. PT's a great example. In order to get themselves to that same space in their head, they have to go for like, I'm the best in the world. It's like evangelical levels of madness. The other way of doing it is to be Maradona, like you mentioned before, or to be a massive diva, right? To be an, someone who is very difficult to deal with. So those big Hollywood stars that are famous for being difficult, that's because that's how they've got over the fear. They've gone, no one can touch me. I'm going to demand some almonds every morning, right? The people who can, who, who, who have the longest longevity, people like Chris Martin of Coldplay, for example, um, those people who genuinely find a way of being positive and having fun with what they do, while working really hard when they go on stage to do the gig they're not panicking about how much rehearsal they've done they're just enjoying themselves when they go on stage if you can get your brain to that place when you walk through the door at work that genuinely goes it does not matter if i get fired <laughs> you'll you'll notice two things one you won't suddenly break a load of compliance rules. You're not suddenly going to be a lunatic and set fire to the building or break safeguarding because you're a sensible human being and you've got competence already built into yourself. What you will do is go in and start to sift through that which is bullshit. And when somebody says to you, Sean, when you're trying to take that idea up and someone says it's going to take a while or someone says, oh, we, we can't do that. You go, why not? Okay, how do we, how do, we do that? I want to do this mm. tomorrow. So how do I do that? You know, and you've just got a playfulness to it. I, I'm going to do this tomorrow. Yeah. So just to loop that back round to the very beginning of our conversation. Why did you strangle me? I, we'll get <laughs> yeah. on to that. Um, I was just going to say, okay. like you started with the example of lawyers or clowns. Yeah, lawyers or clowns. It's the like the, the, the clowns know how to sit in failure, not as a life or death situation, but as a point of play. Yes. And uh, the more clowns we've got, the more interesting stuff happens. And clowning is hard. Like good clowns. Mm. That is, I've done clowning workshops and stuff. I mean, it's harder than anything I've ever done. I couldn't do it. Yeah. The people it's who brutal. are really good at what they do, those people you write off on TV, like Jonathan Russell, uh, you know, when you turn off a TV show, the work that's gone into it. So give me yeah. two more minutes on La La Land, right? Have you both yeah. seen La La Land? Never. No. Holy cow. Right. I know enough about it. Okay. I know. <laughs> the opening scene of La La Land. If you imagine a Los Angeles off-ramp from a highway, right? That they go, yeah. they got sprawl through the air. Yeah. They filmed it on one of those. And it's a scene where typical Los Angeles, there must be 300 cars all just sat still, beeping each other, right? And somebody starts to hum a song, and that song turns into a full musical number. And people jump out of all the cars the whole freeway ramp turns into a, a, a song and dance routine. This song and dance mm. routine was done basically in one shot. It lasts about five minutes and it's multiple people flinging themselves on and off bonnets, yeah. um, in and out of trucks. Suddenly a band appears in a truck. It's 
unbelievable. Now, when they filmed this, this director, Dave, has the pressure of just compare it to any other job. Think of your manager at work and put them in this situation. You've got the pressure of a $50 million budget on your head. You've got two days where you've managed to get the freeway closed, the ramp closed for you to film. Day one is set, setting it up. All the lights, all the cameras, the, the, the dollies, everything. You've been rehearsing for weeks just in car parks of how the camera is going to dance with the people because the camera's going in and out over people's heads, people doing backflips. You know, talk about safeguarding, talk about compliance, right? This is lethal. And then you get to the day, day one, it's a washout. The rain comes in Los Angeles, which doesn't happen, or the cloud, I think it was. And it needs to be, the song's called Another Day of Sun. So can't film, right? <laughs> so day two, they had to get it right. Day two, they had to film this thing, and it was a heat wave in Los Angeles. It was like 40 degrees C, multiple athletes flinging themselves around, backflips, you know, so difficult. The coordination, the logistics, the health and safety, all of that stuff, and yet those actors and the dancers had to feel like they were having fun or we would have seen it on the screen and we'd have gone, we look a bit miserable. I'm going to not watch this. <laughs> and you two haven't even watched the film, right? These people did something that is harder than probably any of us will do in our life and managed to make that amount of money back off it. I would say that that kind of logistical challenge is greater than almost any shipping company has ever had to work out. And and that is why my book is about lifting the head off creative people and applying it to business because they're, they're unbelievable. Like it's unbelievably difficult. And they still didn't manage to win the Oscar. And they still didn't win. Surely they won a couple of Oscars, didn't they? Uh, they did. They just they were the ones that got announced as the winner and then uh, they checked the envelope and it was Moonlight. I want you to put that film on Netflix tonight, boys, and I want you to just hold your breath for that. For, just imagine that that's you directing that mm. scene, right? You've, you've sold me. Jonathan Ross and La La Land. Yeah, quite right. So two two. Two things, because yeah. we probably do need to wrap up fairly quickly. Yeah. One uh, is I don't think the audience will be satisfied if they don't hear why you wanted to strangle me. The other way around, why you strangled me. Oh, sorry, why I'd want to strangle yeah. you and why you probably wanted to strangle me in return. Yeah. And then the other thing we always ask is coaches make coaches. We would also ask for takeaways, but I think given that you've given a little dialogue about uh, not necessarily following the recipe mm. and just making space for play, that feels like a fairly solid takeaway. Well, my takeaway is this. My number one takeaway is this, and it's very little to do with actually being able to help teamwork, <laughs> which is... <laughs> When you watch, I was sat with this great British triathlete the other night and I said, will you be at the next Olympics? She went, you're joking. I have seen her swimming at the local pool and it's like a bullet, right? And she was like, the speed that I run, uh, it takes me 15 minutes to run. Sorry, it takes me half an hour to run what the Olympians run in 15 minutes. And it's unbelievable. Same thing as we are spoilt for entertainment. When you watch entertainers of any kind or when you're trying to sit through that first four episodes of something you don't like, just appreciate how easy it is to make something awful or how hard it is to be that good. When you're watching the Olympics, you have no idea how hard it is to be that good. And if you really want to understand how to get somewhere successful, you have to look at the 
years of failure that it took those people to go through to make that TV show or that film or to run that race. It took years of what we class as failure because they didn't win the race. <laughs> Just like keep trying. Sean, for every time someone says no to you, you need to, you need to be hedging your bets. You need to be taking 99 shots at a basketball net in order to expect mm. one to go in. And that's it. Like that's, it's all about that. It's all about just doing and doing. And Absolutely. Well, for those who are familiar with our Brilliant Ideas board, there are a hell of a lot of post-its in the ideas section that haven't been made, maybe will never get made, but that deserved to be recognized for the idea being had and live up there just in case. Well, you accidentally did what I suggest in the book. You've created a space... The sacred space in sport and theatre, the sacred space is a marked area on the ground, right? If you think about a gladiatorial battle or a theatre or whatever, it's a marked space where the players go and they play and the other people do not step into that space. That is what you have to do for ideas to get good. And what you guys are doing is you, you've got a place where you can chuck ideas. I was worried when you started talking about that when I was listening to it on the podcast because I thought, oh no, they're judging ideas. They're, they're, they're saying that successful ideas are worth having. And that is something organizations do a lot. They say we need to hold up as an example the successful ideas that we've had. That's an awful idea. Because if you go, hey, guys, look, look at look at Sean. He came up with a 500 million pound idea. Now you come up with one. <laughs> That's terrifying, right? Whereas if you go, guys, we had 100 ideas this month. They were all so much fun to work on. End of conversation. Oh, we, we, we worked on all of them at the pub. That's how you get people to work on ideas. And then you start to innovate. And then the culture changes. You don't have a culture that says successful ideas are what's valued in this organization. Yeah. It's not. It's ideas because you have to let them live. You have to let them grow. No idea is good in the first mm. few minutes of his life. It has to grow. And the reason Mark tried to strangle me, <laughs> whenever I've been a, a director um, or a manager, I think my approach is to make people think of me as a peer or to, to, to even dislike me. So not necessarily dislike, but like, I, I don't necessarily want them to think, although I am a genius <laughs> and I've got a vision for the thing that I'm directing, I don't want them to ever think that because I want them to feel like they're in charge. Ultimately, they're going to go out on stage without me. So I want them to be in charge. And sometimes that means occasionally that people, some cast members like really need to feel like somebody's who's pretentious is telling them what to do. And, and I don't get on with those people and I, I wouldn't work with them again, but most people love it. It's like your mates, there's a respect. And if someone says, oh, can I try this idea? I go, I don't know. It might be shit. It might be good. Why don't you try it? But I'm purposely always trying to tell people that I'm not judging mm. what they're doing. And that's the, the secret to all good management, I think. So what I would often do is wind up actors and Mark, my view of Mark as an actor up until that point was that he enjoyed the idea of acting a lot. And, and therefore, the, the, the comments that you got afterwards, when people saying it was your most honest performance, I knew instinctively that I wanted you to just relax and be honest. Don't worry about being an actor. Just worry about being an honest character in this thing that you're doing, right? And there was this moment where he said this, he did this thing, he did this line, and it was perfect. It was brilliant. It was just total honest, total honesty, absolutely brilliant. And I leapt off, <laughs> off my chair and I went, 
that was amazing. You just did it. There was no bullshit. There was no fanning around. You just did it. Just do it again. Do it again now. <laughs> I bet. I, in fact, I said. In fact, I said, I bet you ten quid. That was it. I bet you ten quid. You can't do it exactly like that now. And I stepped back, and he did it. <laughs> it wasn't the same. And I went, no. And he just, and he just lunged at me. Oh man, we were children. And he was so. Oh, he was so disappointed. And it was like, <laughs> listen, as long as I've been alive, I've got recordings from when I was like mm. 11 where I've wound my sister up to the point that she's like a smashing a glass door and stuff just by being that glib and annoying. And the same thing happened a few years later. I was working with like a 50-year-old actor and he he was oh, a different yeah. story altogether. But he, he also lunged at me in the dressing room at halftime he lunged at me and grabbed me around the neck so twice i've been grabbed around the neck marks was not a real strangle the second guy was a real strangle i throw marks in there just to make it you know i can just use it as a story when i annoy well as a as a as a coder i think you probably uh reflectively you hit the nail on the head i certainly was at that point there was a there was a thing outside of myself that was acting that I was looking to to mm. to get to, had no idea how to do it. And in terms of, yeah. just to frame it so that it's related to what you've been talking about, the point at which I got better at doing that thing was I quit it and I came back and I did amateur dramatics. And it meant all of my oh. fundamentals were great because I'd trained at drama school for three years, but I did not give a crap yeah. about whether I was doing it right. I just wanted to do it for fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and yeah, it elevated yeah. my performance game to a point where I was like, maybe I should go back and do this properly. And it's like, I don't know, I don't yeah. know whether that's an environment where I can do that. Uh, so I ended up doing improv instead and uh, there's no way to get that right. Well, that's it. There isn't. And that's, that's frightening, you know, absolutely frightening and really brave. And, and you were always great. It was always a, a case of like with any actor, I've, I've only ever seen what I do as a, a, a reductionist. Mm. That is what I do I, because I fundamentally believe that everyone is talented. Everyone's creative and everyone's capable of it. It's my job to help them sieve out the stuff that's getting in the way the fear or the whatever it is that, that that makes you not able to be yourself you've just got to sieve it out the way you know and unfortunately i think quite often drama school and the and sports sport uh, training is the same i think it can because of this idea that we're trying to be like the famous people we're trying to be like the successful people often that is an idea that's outside of ourselves, and it's an idea that means that people are stripped back and they just feel naked and embarrassed I used to hate the term risk-taking at, at, at drama school. And I know that's used in mm. business a lot as well. You've got to take risks. That sounds terrifying. Why do I want to take... I don't want to dangle off the edge of a building. Like, that's just terrifying. If someone says, have fun, enjoy yourself, that's what it really means. That is what risk-taking means. Because the, the way you take a risk... What's his name? The, the swimmer with the uh, super confidence? Uh, Adam Peaty. Adam Peaty. Is he taking risks or is he having fun? I'm not quite sure because he's a very complex chap, <laughs> but I can guarantee you that he's in the same brain space. He is, he is enjoying himself. He feels the, nothing but absolute pleasure from doing the thing that he's achieving. I think as well, and maybe this ties in with, with what we've been talking about, but maybe haven't said that specifically, but I think being yourself is probably one of the most riskiest things you can do. What, what even is it, Sean? In, in an organization. Yeah, but what is that? What you, is yourself? 
you say this on the radio, you know, when a boss would say, like, on a new show or whatever, just be yourself. What's that? Yeah. What? Oh, it's a, it's a huge, complex kind of, I guess, question. But I think just trying to maybe just be authentic to where you feel comfortable, I guess. Mm. I guess because if, if you're going into situations and you're maybe being performative to an extent because you think that's what the environment needs or wants for you to maybe fit in, then you're not being actually authentic to yourself. You know, if, if you're laughing at the UK office, but you really don't find it funny, but that the little crew at work all find it funny. Yeah. Are you really being authentic to yourself? Or are you trying to fit in with that? Because you really like another program, but they don't watch that. You're not being authentic, yeah. but going in and saying, oh, I don't really like that show, but I really like this show. And then you have a different conversation. You're just kind of being true to yourself. And I think if you're doing that- Give it four episodes, Sean. <laughs> well, Give it four episodes. You'll get into it. Oh, I was locked into to both offices, to be honest. So uh, I didn't need to do the four, the four episodes on, on that the one. I was straight in. Oh, but you're right. God. The, the American office is one of the greatest <laughs> things ever made. Sean, you're um, you're absolutely right. And the, and the be yourself thing, I think there is a trick with that that has to be be yourself plus something, a situation. If you're going into A&E like I did three weeks ago with Broken Leg, if you're going into A&E and you're having to negotiate your way to our front desk and, and some painkillers or, or some crutches or a wheelchair, being yourself with a sense of, urgency and focus at that point is absolutely right right that's 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 me being myself and then there's me us in this conversation now i am being myself now in the same way that i probably would be if i was enjoying a a good debate in a pub right and um yeah and there's a little trick you can do that's like if you if you're nervous about a situation if you're going in somewhere and you um feel like oh i don't know who i am just be yourself just be yourself oh, and there's just all there is is a chasm of fear and bile um then if you've got a way that you talk to friends or a partner if you quite often people have got silly voices that they use with with partners right um my wife does one it's a bit like miranda sings if you've ever watched miranda sings she's incredible she's like it's kind of like this is kind of a vic and bob voice it's a bit like that now, if you do that voice in your head, if you talk to yourself just before you walk through that door and go, where are we going now? Oh, we're going to go in this office. We're going to have a good time. Um, and then you open your door and you speak in your normal voice, but you open the door. The attitude that you bring into the room. Oh, yeah. How are you doing? Great stuff. You've got you've put yourself psychologically into a place that that is only reserved for happiness and fun and, and relaxation, you know. And it's those things. It's that. That's how you do it. When you're a radio presenter, you know there are so many days of your life that you do not want to be on the radio at six in the morning, being entertaining. Um, and that's how you do it. You do it by finding an energy that you tap into that is fun, because the audience need to feel like it's fun, not like it's honest, but like it's a, an honest fun. You know. Um, and I think that's that's something that's the the best sports people. And this is what the athlete was saying to me the other day. She thinks that I'm onto something here because she thinks the best sports people that she knows um, and the best time she's done races has been when something really funny has happened just before, and she has genuinely not cared about <laughs> winning the race. And she goes out there and just just relaxes on the professionalism that she's got. And she's done like a PB as a result. And I think it's the same across the board. We are at our best when we're, when we're, you know, yeah. spinning things. So, Mark, I am sorry that I ever 
made you want to strangle me, but I'm also glad to hear that it, it, it bore results from the... <laughs> yes, be yourself. Just know that yourself might get you strangled. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so we always ask our guests, um, kind of anyone who sort of inspired them or uh, maybe they've taken something from that's kind of molded them a little bit in terms of how they work in a team or they've been inspired by sometimes they know them and they've worked with those people uh, other times it could just be someone kind of general you know a superstar or something like that or a book that they've read and it's really resonated with them but yeah we ask our our guests um coaches make coaches um so yeah who made you who made you three things number one sir ken robinson's youtube video do schools kill creativity just in case yeah, just in case you've never watched Link it. in the show notes. But it's watched something like 90,000 times a day for the last 12 years or whatever it was. That ch- changed my life because it suddenly made me realize why I, I didn't need to apologize for being a creative person anymore. Secondly, and by the way, I discount the term creative person. As I said earlier, it's ridiculous. Second, Jim Henson uh, is someone who I studied greatly jim henson is thought of as uh sesame street he, he yes he invented sesame street but the muppets were really a collection of comedians what what jim henson did in one lifetime is only what kind of um my other two obsessions charlie chaplin and walt disney those three are fascinating business people to look into in their lifetime they meant that every kid in the world almost every human being were aware of what they were doing which is incredible um and jim henson especially because he had such incredible creative management rules which was uh, largely around if you're in the room it's all about who can make the funniest joke and if you nobody's welcoming that room saying i don't think that bit works unless they're topping it with with a funnier suggestion or a better plot point or whatever so there are lots of little jim henson books that you can get that are great thirdly um, on Disney Plus, there is a documentary called Inside Pixar. It's a series of things. They're 10 minutes long each. Go straight to episode two. A woman called Jessica Height, who's the script supervisor at Pixar. Um, it's a brilliant story. It's the most boiled down version of how I think innovation works in organizations. And she has changed the world as a result of what she did. And a real human being was Alex Byrne, who was the head of directing at Rose Bruford, where Mark and I went. And I came out of college one day. You do this thing called directing practice where you direct a scene, all the direct, you you direct a scene for an hour, all the directors on the course watch you direct. And at the end, they give you notes. It's horrendous. It's like, yeah, Sean, I think you could have, you could have sort of stood two paces to the left at this point when you were talking to your actors. (laughs) It's just like unbelievable example in like nitpicking (laughs) and note giving. And I had a really, really bad, it was my turn. I had a really bad director's practice. I hadn't read the script that I was directing. I hadn't even read the scene I was doing with people. It was crash and burn. I got crucified. And anyway, I left the building and Alex Byrne, who's head of directing, he hadn't been in that session, but he was just leaving in his mini and he just pulled up by the door. He went, you all right? I went, oh, I'm miserable. He said, why? That I just had an awful director's practice. And he said, that's because you're an untalented bastard and drove off. And, <laughs> and it was the best thing that anyone could have said to me. It was just like in a moment, that was his approach was like, 
it was like comedy. It was like Jim Nothing matters. And it instantly cheered me up and just, it doesn't matter. And he embodied that idea of like, have fun, don't risk take. Why is it so important to you to come out of directing practice and go, I failed, I'm a terrible human being. No, it doesn't matter. Just do what you want and get away with as much as you can. Avoid doing any proper work. That's my number one piece of advice. That's such a, that's such a great motto. Uh, and one I think uh, we're going to have to end on thank you so much Hal for joining this and thank you Sean for putting up with this impromptu uh, yeah. university reunion sorry Sean no it's been awesome it's been great watching you wake up it's Sean. been awesome thank you <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much we could have chatted for ages um, you go into all sorts of detail in the book, Managers Managing Magic, Enabling Creative Innovation. I will put a link to picking that up. I found it an incredibly easy read and is just, it is, you know, if you do want steps, they're in there. It's chock full of them. And if you are anyone who feels like they want to just see more ideas birthed in their workplace, like it's such a, it's such a great way just to change that perspective, like you were saying, how of ideas are a thing that's possible yeah where culturally we've we've got used to it i had not. someone tell me it's a really good parenting book as well which is interesting because i'm not a parent but that's good i definitely <laughs> wanted to write something for everybody that basically said listen you are creative and this is how you do it um and if you're a manager well there is yeah. a there is a subtitle that you that you put on it and it reminds me of a kind of a subtitle mm. that you would get on a parenting book that says for managers everywhere trying their bloody hardest like This isn't straightforward being in charge of people or being collaborative. And there is a great deal of cutting yourself some slack in there too. So I think, I think people will pick, pick pick up on that. Well, anytime boys, uh, it's been really enjoyable. I'm, my legs up in the air for six weeks. You're the first human beings I've talked to outside of my wife for three. So sorry that this has uh, (laughs) been a painkiller fueled rant. Most of it. Watch La La Land. Tell me what you think. <laughs> yeah, I want a full review of La La Land from both of you. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time there. We really appreciate it. Love the podcast. Cheers. <laughs> so there you go. I uh, committed violence on a director when I was a younger man. <laughs> Deary me. Uh, I feel a little bit bad, but also not surprised that I blocked that out of my memory. Uh, and it, I, I don't know, I felt super proud when he said it's been part of his talk, his, his shtick his, his his for years. <laughs> and I think, um, I think what I love about that is because I do have incredibly fond memories of that particular piece. And I did end up feeling supremely proud of myself. So whether or not it's counterproductive to say it, Whatever he was doing while being this terrible manager that he calls himself, he he did get more out of me than anyone had up to that point, which is an interesting one. So that kind of that that pushing, that challenging had some kind of an impact for what, in whatever way it could. Absolutely. I'm sure I'm sure uh, the sports psychologists have a better terminology for it. But, you know, you put your arm around the shoulder of some people and you bollock others. And it seemed as though we <laughs> needed to bollock you to get the best out of you, Mark. Uh, Sean teasing the fact that we have a phenomenal sports psychologist coming on in our next episode, but we'll uh, we'll let you get excited about that in due course. You you said in the intro that it kind of made you feel like you have a box that you're that that you're in. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think for our regular listeners, we've had many conversations about 
for me, it can be difficult to be creative. And I think that I sometimes am a bit more harsh on myself than that because we've spent enough time together for you to know where I come up with a bright idea or something like that. Mm. And I get juiced up about it and I want to see it through and, and complete, complete that. But yeah, just, I, I don't know from a performance or artistic point of view, I've just never thought of sort of big sky ideas necessarily. Cause I just feel as though maybe they're untangible and maybe I don't have the best skill set to complete those very creative things. And so I think, um, you know, how made us sort of really think about that or made me think about that, especially in that hyper creative kind of terminology and sort of saying that anyone can be creative and maybe the definition of creativity is different from what people yeah. think. It's something that I dug about it actually that and something I wanted to kind of throw at you now is this idea of is it always that I I'm assuming I'm not creative because I've never found myself in environments where creativity is valued or allowed or supported which is when he's talking about managers kind of creating and making space and then holding that space for people to do the screwing up is it potentially that we don't we don't put people in that place very often. We don't allow for that failure or for that trial and error or for that experimentation in the workplace where it's already running, you know, it's where success has to happen. Absolutely. I think, you know, people lord over, you know, people like Cristiano Ronaldo and, and Lionel Messi because they do things on the pitch that is way more creative than others and they see things that other players don't. Uh, and they need managers to allow them to do that, right? If they're held back, you're not going to get the best out of those players. And I think in my experience growing up, I was creative, but in a sports world, there is points on the line and there is a win or a loss or a draw. So you're always trying to you know, work to what the coach is asking you to do yeah. and sort of you don't break out of that mold too often unless you're very, very confident uh, in your own ability or maybe just a maverick on the pitch. Yeah, you know? and I think that's what the 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 book, uh, Hal's book, Managers Managing Magic, uh, one of the takeaways from that, apart from some really very solid tips on on how you create that space, is that kind of permission or pep talk to be a little more confident or risky, you know, where you, where you can be as the coach, uh, someone who is confident enough in their team mentality and their team culture to say, okay, you know what you're doing, go off and do it in the best way you know how in the knowledge that I've, you know, we've got fundamentals covered. Uh, and that's a difficult thing to do when it's mission critical. Uh, and so I think, and takes practice. Absolutely. And I think it doesn't come on sort of match day of saying, you know, go out and be you. It comes from, you know, session after session after session after session where there's a continuity of creativity, so to speak, where every day we're being creative uh, on the training pitch because then it becomes second nature on sort of match day. And I think, you know, all the different books out there and coaching uh, sort of research and things like that is trying to look at how coaches can be more creative and not be so structured in their approach because it yeah. can it can hold back an athlete from being the best version that they can be which ultimately may mean winning a gold medal or not or you know doing something fantastic in a, in a game or getting that uh you know throwing that winning touch touchdown that maybe they wouldn't have taken that 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 choice of pass if they weren't being as creative and risky so yeah, yeah well, we do, it's a tough at one at the moment the nfl have just released their 100 greatest players as voted for by the players and number one 
is unsurprisingly Patrick Mahomes, whose greatest strength is when everything goes a little bit wrong. When the game plan goes to crap, how do I adapt? And it's his highlight reel is a highlight reel of adaptations, not a highlight reel of perfectly executed plays where every everything's gone right. It's in the face of someone trying to disrupt you. How do you how do you get it to work? Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. Which is why that La La Land thing was interesting. Uh, the conversation about like that, that sequence. Oh, he, he, he done an excellent job of selling me on La La Land. I, I saw, <laughs> I saw that, you know, it's a good few years ago now that that came out and I just thought, nope, musical Ryan Gosling, Emma Stone singing and dancing for, you know, over an hour and a half, not for me. Uh, and, uh, he said I had to watch it. So, so I did, I'd done, done my homework and I have to say like the appreciation of, of that scene based on the conversation that we had and what went into it. I even went and done a YouTube behind the scenes of it and, mm. and heard the directors and the, you know, choreograph choreographers talk about how difficult that was to achieve. And, you yeah. know, there was almost teamwork was all kind of sort of, uh, came to life, um, and was defined, in that two days of filming, you know, that one scene of the movie. Yeah. And I do, I do talk, we've spoken on the podcast a chunk about whenever we're talking about performance, about stepping away from this idea that being able to do it is a magic trick. And yet there is some, there is something magic about what happens when everyone is prepared and adversity hits and everyone pulls together or everyone gets it done twice as fast because you have to, there is something mystical about that, which is, you know, I think that's why it's in the book because I think how would agree like fundamentals, skills, uh, practice can be defined and practiced and improved purely for the purpose of when everything goes to hell and that's the magic. Yeah. And you know, th those dancers and stuff, you know, they're getting that job because of a bunch of other work where they've, they've come through and like, they've got the job done and that's why they're doing a huge, you know, big budget La La Land movie. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we can, we can say glitz and glamour of, of sort of Tinseltown, but really it is that sort of who is gritty and who is resilient because, uh, and then, and then when you see the behind the scenes, then you see the finished product. I know there's editing and all that kind of stuff, but like it was them dancing on cars. Like it was yeah. them trying to find some sunlight to make it look like LA. <laughs> on the one day it decided to be cloudy um you know so yeah the end product is pretty magical uh when you see what they were going through on set at the time so yeah i thought that was a really great demonstration that he uh that he gave us um on on the podcast and uh yeah i done my homework and i was pleasantly surprised amazing well we didn't get on to talking about his rabbit hotel, which uh, I guess is an excuse to get him on again uh, at another time. And uh, I'm sure he would love to come on and actually d talk about like specific challenges to creativity or to, to process that, that people have. So if anyone has a question that they want to throw at him based off of what you heard him talk about, like send, send it in uh, to email or hit us up on LinkedIn and we'll throw it at him and see what he comes up with. But yeah, that like, super episode, like absolutely bonkers to speak to Hal after such a long time and to like have various different versions of uh, those memories come back as well as, <laughs> as well as learning about what he's been doing so far. And he is doing some phenomenal stuff and has such an incredible kind of track record 
in radio and in podcasting. So let's hope we did it, did ourselves proud. I hope so. I think he'll let us know if we don't. Uh, absolutely um and yeah if you want to find out more about how you can you can visit his website how.info that's h-y-w-e-l.info or you can hit him up on linkedin uh i'll put links to all of this in the show notes links to where you can get the book and paperback and audiobook in kindle uh as well as uh Maybe I'll put a link to the song that I mentioned in the episode uh, on Spotify, if you've got it, or I'll put a YouTube link in of the song that has been on every playlist uh, of serious tunes I've made since that project. That's kind of it for today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. We do have a phenomenal guest for the next uh, for the next episode. Sean and I had a blast talking to them, uh, so keep an ear out for that. Uh, if you want to suggest any guests, if you want to give us any feedback on the music, again, kindly provided by Archer's Audio. Uh, links to them in the show notes as well. If you want to ask us any questions or suggest any guests, you can hit us up on social media at No I Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. You can email us, Mark or Sean, S-E-A-N, at noipodcast.show. Uh, or you can come track us down on LinkedIn. Uh, our profiles are up and public and uh, we have got some really super guests from LinkedIn and some really super conversations from LinkedIn as well. So check out kind of who we're sharing because there's so much good kind of teamwork stuff that's getting talked about on there. Can't fault it at all. But uh, for now, and thank you for sticking with us for this s- sort of long one, um, all that's left is for me to say goodbye from Sean. Goodbye, guys. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. You must be like the wolf pack, not like the six pack. Teamwork. Yes. <laughs>